Father, we know that you love your son and uh, you'd love people to honour him rather than ignore him or trivialise him. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to be at work to help us to hear uh, and to see him more clearly. Uh, we pray for this help in his name. Amen. Now, the church that my parents went to much of my childhood had a weird notice in the, in the pulpit. And occasionally, we would climb up in the pulpit. Let's see if we can get those pictures coming. And it had this written in wood, sort of nailed or screwed into the pulpit, Sir, we would see Jesus. And I remember as a kid, not getting it, thinking it was kind of weird. Uh, but then I discovered that that's actually not an uncommon thing to have in quite a few pulpits around the world. This one here, someone scratched it into the lectern. And it comes from John chapter 12, and it's supposed to be a reminder to the preacher that people don't want to see him or her. They've come to see him, Jesus. And this is a request uh, said to Andrew, I think, sir, we would see Jesus. And that is, of course, the thing that we, if we know Jesus, we want to see him better. And if we don't know him, that's what the, the Bible is going to keep saying. Don't worry too much, I think, but keep your, get your attention onto him. Because uh, he not only gets us, but he transforms us. And so we're going to do that today with this, this uh, strange story of the feeding of the 5,000, the banquet in the desert. For me, it's one of the least exciting of Jesus' miracles, um, which tells you nothing about the quality of the miracle. It just, I, I, as we've talked about, that I don't like something in the Bible or that I don't think it's very important tells you nothing about its importance or about, you know, how true it is. It just tells you about me and my culture. I'm not particularly taken by this miracle because it's, it's kind of unnecessary. They weren't starving to death. They'd, they're like, they'd, they'd missed a meal. That's all they'd done. I mean, he went 40 days without food. These guys are just missing a meal. My, my children used to sometimes say, I'm starving to death. Now, I don't want to say they were lying, but I think they were exaggerating. Well, see, when he raises someone from the dead or calms the storm or, you know, heals someone who can't walk or... They're big deals. You may ask, what, why? And here's the odd thing. There are only two sort of miraculous power works that Jesus does that are in all four Gospels. The resurrection, obviously, that he walks out of the tomb alive before he then appears to people and has meals with them, as we'll see. He has at least two meals with people after he rises from the dead. But the other one is the feeding of the 5,000. And I feel like saying to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, boys, you could have done better than that. Uh, there's all sorts of things that you tell us you don't put in because you've got to choose. You can't write books that go on forever like some sermons do. But you've, it's um, that sort of selection. But all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, despite of their different concerns at point, all think this is a crucial moment in Jesus' life. Um, so, which indicates to me that I don't, you know, my thinking is shallow in some areas again. So let's look firstly at how Jesus' kindness creates a problem, which is where this story starts in Luke chapter 9. It's his kindness that causes a problem. Verse 10. When the apostles returned, returned from where? Where do you go back to earlier in the same chapter? When he had sent out the 12 out to do exactly what he had been doing. He empowers them to preach, to cast out demons and to heal the sick. 
So the, the 12 go out and they do that. And they've just come back, excited but exhausted. One of the other accounts of this uh, moment tells us that Jesus took them away so they could rest. He understands people, you know, all sorts of activity. We need rest after it. So in his kindness, he takes them away to rest, took them to a place called Bethsaida. We know where that is on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee where the Jordan River comes in. And there's still now vast areas that are, they're not desert, but they're just open land. No one's farming them yet, as it was then. He goes into those sorts of regions, a remote area, the disciples call it. He goes up to Bethsaida, but the crowds learned about it and followed him. Isn't that a pain, eh? He goes away for rest, they go away for rest, and people follow him and are knocking on his door, as it were, and uh, they're following him. So how does Jesus respond to this interruption? He welcomed them and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. So you see, it's this sort of kindness that that creates the problem that we have of a massive shortage of food in a few minutes. But Jesus really could have dealt with it better. He could have said to the people, off you go. You know, you're sucking the life out of me and the boys. We need rest so we can do long-term work here. But he doesn't, he welcomes them. And he deals with their needs. Firstly, he deals with their, their need of truth, so he teaches them about what the kingdom of God really is. And he heals those that are sick. He always takes physical needs seriously. It is one of the fairly distinctive marks of Christianity, its obsession with taking the human body seriously. It's why wherever we go, and this goes right back to the second century, we open up hospitals. Are we concerned about the spiritual and the eternal? Absolutely. Do we trivialise the physical? Absolutely not. So hospitals, healing and banquets. But it's the kindness of Jesus that sets this problem up. Because in the end, the disciples come to him at the end of the day. And if you, it's funny, if you, if you do read the four Gospels in parallel on this passage, it, it's a classic study of honest historians, honest writings. Because the main lines of the story are the same, but there are all sorts of different bits of information put here and there. So uh, you, they've got different words that different Gospel writers all use for the fact that it's at the end of the day. It's nearly night time. The people have stayed too long because they found his teaching too interesting and maybe they enjoyed the show of watching sick people get better. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote remote place here. Now, just notice those first words here. Send the people away. Send the crowd away. My hunch is two things with this. One, I think they're probably a little grumpy. They were supposed to be having some R&R, a bit of a time at the club med, and these needy people came and suddenly their time of R&R has become just another day of Jesus teaching and healing and dealing with you know, all sorts of questions and that. So uh, it may well be that, come, send them away. Like, really? I mean, they weren't supposed to be here anyway. This is us time. We, we just wanted to send them away. I think they're probably a bit grumpy, perhaps understandably, all peopled out. But also notice how bossy they are. They speak to Jesus as if he's their servant. Send the people away. Not, hey, Jesus, do you think it might be a good idea? No, no. They give him very clearly his instructions. None of us would do that, would we? 
None of us, when we pray, would go and boss God around. And, 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 like, you've obviously blown it here. Let me tell you what your agenda should be. Right? That's what these guys are doing. So that's the first thing. And this is all created because of Jesus' kindness out there and now his kindness to them when they invade and interrupt that little space they had. Secondly, Jesus starts to do something new here, and that is he is including his disciples into his work. Starts at the beginning of chapter 9 when he sends them out to do exactly the same sort of work that he had done. See, because the first eight chapters or so, which, which may have been a year and a bit, is, is just Jesus doing things with the disciples watching. It's not a bad way to teach. I know Phil does it when he trains people. You know, they, they watch him, they do it with him, then they do it on their own. So Jesus starts off with following the Phil technique. Maybe it's the other way around. Um, where They just watch him for the first time. They're trying to make sense of this guy, trying to work out who he is, what category, how they should treat him. Secondly... It begins in chapter 9, and really it's quite clear from here on in that he's getting the disciples now to work with him. They're now involved in the program. And it starts here with verse 13. Jesus replied to their command to tell them to go away. He says, you give them something to eat. Now, I don't know whether or not Jesus had a gentle smile at that point as he gave them this command, because I think there is something somewhat humorous about it. You give them something to eat. You think, go away. You lot, go away. You're not our problem. Am I my brother's keeper? Rack off. We didn't ask you to come. You've invaded our picnic. Go on, toddle off, get yourself some food. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You give them food. You 12 guys. Give these 5,000 or so people food. Now, in Matthew's gospel, it's crystal clear that the 5,000 is 5,000 men and women and children. So there actually may have been, you know, um, you know up to 12,000 uh, there. But we're happy to call it 5,000. It's a good number. And Jesus, as you know, makes fish, bread and fish. That's um, just a mild, humorous note for the vegans and others. But um, you see, this is from The Chosen, which I think is an utterly brilliant program. Uh, to what say. Some people don't like it. That's fine. It's art, so it goes, you, know, you like it and hate it. I think it's brilliant. Um, this is the, the account of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's a large crowd. You ever fed... Even something sometimes like Christianity, when we have a dozen people around, simply Christianity, I find that a little bit of a handful. I love the fact that there's a dozen people there, but it's kind of easy if there's just five or six. 5,000? Are you kidding me? So Jesus gives them the job. They answer, it's a ridiculous job. We have only... Five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. There's about 5,000 men who are there. Well, you know the story. It was a little kid they got the food from. He'd brought his play lunch. Um, five little barley loaves, we're told, which is the food of the poor. And it's also, which is because we know this is just before Passover, it's one of these little historical accuracies that you get in the New Testament all the time. It was the time when... Everybody in the area is eating barley loaves because the barley harvest comes in before the wheat harvest, which is celebrated after the party. It's just one of those little, little things that because it's a genuine eyewitness account, it's barley loaves, not your ordinary bread made from wheat. But they're poor people's food and they're small loaves. They're really bread rolls, really. We've only got five loaves of bread and two fish. 
dried fish, presumably, unless we go and buy food. In one of the other Gospels, one of the, we're told that it would cost half a year's salary. Right? So if you're on the staff at St. Matt's, apart from me, that's about 200 bucks. We don't want to spoil them. Um, actually, it's a little bit more than that. But, you know, half, 30,000, 40,000, whatever a salary is worth in Australia at the moment. Um, it's a lot of bread. And that's only for bread. That's not for fish. I'm not going to buy them fish. Are you kidding? Bread. So they say, this is ridiculous. So Jesus is really giving them an impossible command, isn't he? Right? It's a, it seems silly. And I want to suggest just in passing, you will have that experience with God too, won't you? When God asks you to do something, you say, that is just ridiculous. How can he expect us to do that? Um, but that's what he does. He gives a command that at one level is impossible. Then he gets the disciples to prepare the people for a miracle that's coming in. It's a bit like someone who's sort of clearing the land so the helicopter can come in. He said to the disciples, make them sit in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so. Everyone sat down. So Jesus includes the disciples in this important work. They're now sort of partners with him. They're on a co-mission together. Now, the problem they're dealing with is a very common problem. Some of you will know of a guy called Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L, African-American, I think one of the smartest, most thoughtful, well-researched men I've ever had the pleasure of listening to, thanks to YouTube, and uh, you can find him. Uh, he's 90-something years of age, uh, grew up as a very poor black American, um, became a very passionate communist, went to some of America's finest universities, still continued to be communist, even though he has taught the finer points of, of um, the capitalist system. But what he said finally made him think harder and leave it behind was working for the government when he just saw all these policies uh, and when you study the results of them, they were often much more destructive than constructive. Because he, he, he's, he's a sort of a, uh, an evidence-driven guy. So he... I won't, we won't, but he's, he's worth looking up because just about everything we get taught about the history of, of the, in the last 50 or 60 years of uh, his people, the black, you know, Negro Americans, is nonsense. So he says before the 1960s, right, the African American families were more intact than white families. Right? They were less likely to have trouble with the police than white families. That's a statistical average. He said the government made changes to policy in the 60s that he says is the thing that seems to have destroyed the American African families. He says it got nothing to do with slavery because he said when we came out through slavery, which is a horror, he said our families were in better nick than the white people's. He said other things. And it, it's just kind of fun listening to him. It's, it's kind of heresy. But one of the things that I learned from him was this. He says the first law of economics is scarcity, right? that there's not enough stuff compared to human desire. And economics, he says, is working out how to live with scarcity and how scarcity affects prices. He then goes on to say the first law of politics is to ignore the first law of economics. So to pretend that you can do anything you want, money is you know, boundless. Uh, he's a very worthwhile guy to listen to. I don't think he's particular. I don't think he's done anything about his belief in God, but his social analysis is heretical and excellent. But he says scarcity is the thing. And brother, an awful lot of human life is dealing with scarcity or our fear of scarcity. We don't have enough. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough petrol. We don't have enough all sorts of things. And that's what these guys are dealing with. They don't have enough bread 
to feed these people who are gathering around Jesus. But Jesus takes it in hand. The last section is looking at the way that Jesus turns this utter crisis into a celebration. Verses 16 and 17. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and broke them. He gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. In Matthew's Gospel, it says explicitly, he gave them to the disciples who gave them to the people. It's the same word used repeatedly. So he had told them, hadn't he? Give the people some food. They said, can't happen. But in the end, when, they, when he teams up with them, they do in the end do exactly what he called them and give the people food. So um, this is the picture when the disciples are having their discussion with Jesus. There's a problem here with food. This is the, the picture of the little guy who's got the five loaves and the, the couple of fish. And then this is the disciples... It's quite fun because what you hear, which I think is probably, is the laughter and the disbelief that the disciples have when they discover mountains of food. Um, It's almost certain that most of the crowd had no idea what happened. All they saw was the disciples handing out food. Some of them did. The miracle seems to have been more for the disciples than for the crowd. But they are excited and they begin to hand out. They, They must have got a lot of extras there handing out the food to the 5,000. If you look closely, you can see the uh, disciples handing out food there. So they are here working with Jesus. The disciples are involved. But the key words that happens in, in identical in Matthew, Mark and Luke and almost the same, but the same reality but different words in John's Gospel is this in verse 17. They all ate and were satisfied. Right? This is important. Possible scarcity, an absurdly big problem. But Jesus steps in and they all ate and were satisfied. Now, there are any number of foolish ways that people have tried to explain this to avoid God being involved in God's world, which he does sometimes quite explicitly. He normally makes bread, fish and wine through the ordinary process of humans working with the stuff that he's made. He's forever turning water into wine and wheat into bread or barley. You may have gone to a church as a kid which gave you these explanations. Let me give you one of the most common, really quickly, is it just, there's no miracle here. Well, the miracle is the heart transformation. Jesus brings out this one generous-hearted boy who says, I've got five loaves and two fish. And then everyone else is kind of shamed. Oh, yeah, I, I, I do have some food here tucked away, you know. I got an esky back in the ute. I'll go and get it. Um, and, and in the end, it's a thing about how if one person acts generously, we all get moved. Right? Mm. So moved that there are 12 baskets of leftovers at the end. You can believe that if you want. It, it's based on a prejudice that says God cannot you know, work in his world. The other one, which is even crazier, but actually people with PhDs... Here it is. This was taught in a church that a man I admire used to go to. Jesus worked this out beforehand. He got the disciples to go and buy the bread and buy the fish, hide it in a cave behind where he was teaching. And then when the problem came, he then, and they, they put a cut down in the back of his um, robe. And then what Jesus would do is he, he prayed. Good example that Phil drew our attention to, to stop and thank God for the food. Right. Um, 
what, what he does is he does that, the standard Jewish prayer, and then he just keeps reaching in, bringing out bread and fish and bread, and the disciples are in the cave, handing it through, handing it through. Brilliant. So you've got Jesus as a de deliberate, deceptive liar. Well, that's brilliant. But what happens is Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people in the barren land. It's a theme that's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of the messianic banquet that God will provide for his people. He will turn scarcity into abundance. So you've heard these verses in the last couple of weeks from the, the book Isaiah, the prophet. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine and the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And then you can hear the heart of God, the heart of Christ here in, in Isaiah 55. He says this, Come all you are thirsty, come to the waters. You have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk. God goes on, without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, this is the, this is the invitation that powers through the Old Testament and heads off into the book of Revelation of the great banquet that the Messiah will oversee. So what's the significance of this? He does turn, Jesus does turn here, scarcity into superabundance. He does it. He doesn't say go and do likewise, but you may well, and Christians have, done an awful lot over history. There's no group done more than, than Christians have done to alleviate the hunger of the poor. I'm happy to go through the stats with you uh, later on if you'd like. We can find them for you. That's a thing that Christians have always done, partly because Jesus does it. But that's not the point here. The point here is something more wonderful. It raises again the question of who the heck is this? You've got it in the sandwich since we're talking about bread. Verse 9 and then in verse 20, the question of Jesus' identity. In the middle is the feeding of the 5,000, this abundant provision that God makes in a position where they should just be hungry. Herod asks in verse 9, the question which constantly is being asked in the Gospels, who is this? Verse 9, Herod said, I beheaded John, who then is this? that I hear such things about. And he tried to see him. As a little caution there, friends, if you're amongst those who think, I'd, I'd like to see Jesus, maybe. Herod wanted to see Jesus. He could have seen Jesus pretty much any time he wanted. If he left his castle, or he could have seen him like he did with John the Baptist and arrest him. I think this is partly an illusion that Herod has. Oh, I'd be interested, not too interested. Not interested enough to go and see him or meet him, since I'm running the show. But he does ask the question, who is this? And then Jesus himself asks the question that I want to suggest to you, God the Father would want to ask all of us to reflect on, and that is, who do you think this guy is? Jesus says, it's the great question that's running through the first half of all the Gospels. Who do the crowds say that I am? And then verse 20, more importantly, who do you say that I am? 
And, and it gets raised because, see, you're not going to sit here and go, you know, who is that guy who did the, the sermon this morning? I mean, he, you know, I don't, I don't raise that sort of question. I'm not that interesting. I'm not that different. But when you see Jesus, when you actually see what the heck he's saying and what he's doing, he's saying, I am the bread of life, you know. I come to lay down my flesh as bread, eat me and you will live forever. That sort of thing. Who is this guy? Herod asks it. Jesus wants us to ask it. These questions are, what do you make of this man? After he calms the storm, the disciples say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Twice earlier on, the question is asked, who is this man who forgives sins? And the way it works in the end for the disciples and for all people that look at him is, if it walks like a duck and swims like a duck and Quacks like a duck, tastes like a duck. It's a flippin' duck, right? And with Jesus, in the end, he talks like God, he acts like God, he does what only God can do, and in the end, Thomas goes, my Lord and my God. It's a deduction, a conclusion built on the evidence. So just after this account, the, Jesus gives the disciples the question, who is he? He is the king, he is the Messiah, I watched um, a semi-documentary thing on Netflix over the last couple of weeks when I'm having lunch or something on my own um, on Alexander the Great. And a guy who studied him once said to me, do you know what Alexander was great at? I said, no. He said he was great at killing people, which he was. Just um, led all sorts of military campaigns just for fun. But they... Both the Persian, on the Persian side of this sort of acted thing and on the Greek side, they use this phrase my king and the my was quite real and the word king was quite real that's what messiah is to speak of jesus as a prophet as some religions do as an enlightened guru as some religions do etc is just the wrong category and he's not a prophet it's one of the options that the crowd has for jesus that they give in verse 18 he's the king he's the one with authority He's the one who owns the world. He owns the world that you live in and owns the cells that make up your brain and owns the source of your talents, etc. He is the king or he's a false messiah who is to be ignored as a sick man. But the beautiful thing with this king is two things. He's kind. He, you really can trust this one with authority. And you see it, don't you, in the way that he treats these people who invade his space and give him no rest. But more than that, you see it because when when he is in the wilderness the first time, in the desert, has not eaten for 40 days, right? He could really say, I'm starving to death. And the evil one comes and says, why don't you use your power as a son of God to turn this bit of rock into bread, not a donut, into a piece of bread? And Jesus refuses to do this. He said, no, I will trust God. I'm not using my power for myself. He's got these 5,000 people who are in every different state of belief and unbelief and curiosity. They've missed a meal. Then he will use his power. Do you see the beautiful nature of this king? He will not use his power for himself. Deep, intense need. But he will use his power to help others in much lesser need because that is the heart of God. We have nothing to fear from this God. We do not need to run away and hide, although we do. That's what we do. But secondly, see that he is the superabundant one. His desire is to bless and to enrich. 
I remember when I got, became a Christian and I was so shocked, almost obvious disbelief really, when I read this verse from Jesus where Jesus says, I have come that you may have life, life abundant. And I remember thinking, nah, I don't think so. It's true. I'll try and walk in this way, but it's not abundant. I have discovered subsequently it is absolutely abundant and full and deeply satisfying. But uh, that's the Messiah, the King. He is kind and trustworthy, and he's super abundant and generous. Well, we, we sort of need to bring this to an end, don't we? Um, I won't bore you with beautiful pictures of bread. Here's a guy who made shoes, a shoemaker, a cobbler. And um, he led one of the great pushes of the world to keep the gospel moving out, which Jesus meant it to. Uh, he, he went from, the gospel finally got to England, and then he was involved in taking it to India. And as some of you know, uh, when the Europeans got to India, they discovered there was a bunch of Christians already in India who were Christians in India before there were Christians in England. It's just one of the, Thomas uh, got down there, the apostle. But he spent many, many years, he died there in India. But he, he made up this expression, which I think is great for here. It is, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. And, that we, and that's what he did. That we have a God who is more than able to help and to support and to make the impossible possible. That's what he can do. Now that can be misused in a silly way. But all sorts of ways we see that God can almost miraculously, and yes, miraculously at times, intervene to make the impossible possible. That you can love that person who you're commanded to love. You can be strengthened to forgive that person, to not treat them as their sin deserves, as the Bible calls us to do. In 1978, I think it was, 70-something, I had no intention of going into full-time Christian work. It was just not on the agenda at all. And within a week, suddenly, it, it seemed like the right thing. It seemed from God that I should do this thing called the Anglican Youth Workers Course. And I went to the Bible College, run by a guy called Dr. Broughton Knox. Funny little man, genius, but anyhow, I, was talking, I had to have an interview. And he said, do you think there'll be any problems with you being at more College this year? I mean, I didn't want to go to more College because I was under the spell of a lecturer from Sydney Uni who hated more College. So I was only going because it gave me the ticket to get out and become a youth minister. I did subsequently discover it was quite fun. But I said, my only problem, I think, is going to be I don't have any money because uh, I wasn't planning on doing this. And we talked for a bit, and he was convinced, as I was, that God seemed to be calling me to do this thing. He said, oh, Ian, he said, don't let money ever get in your way. He said, God's more than able to provide the money. And I really didn't expect this odd chap to speak like some crazy Christian hippie, you know? Yeah, don't worry about money, man. It's okay, it's cool, right? But he, but he knew what he was talking about, right? God is super abundant in wealth and capable to enable things to happen. I think, friends, we've seen it. Don't get tense. We're not, not, not asking you to give a few more million to the building. Not this week. But, but I tell you what we're, what's happening, what, what God seems to be doing. We've got this building. It's almost finished, and it's more than half paid off. I would suggest that most of us, when we're just building a house, don't build a house from the ground up with it being half paid for before it's even finished. Now, you might. God bless you. Good luck to you. Right? But that two million bucks has already been paid off of this one, 3.5 or 6 million. 
That's not to be snuffed at or scoffed at or taken for granted. That's rare. So when we think about it, when I think about the 1.5 million or so bucks to come, there's no need to panic. God is well able to bring that money in at the time that he sees fit. God is super abundantly wealthy and able to help. So you might, you might have any number of personal challenges that you are frightened of facing. Things that are coming down the channel to you. And you think, I don't know if I can do that. Particularly in the call to, as Jesus said, you know, why don't you go and feed those people? But he is more than able to help us. Let's sing a song while we're seated. Uh, let's see if we... This could, this could be a disaster. But that's okay. Disasters are fun. How many of you, and it'll be a certain age group, when I got saved... I was introduced to this song, Jehovah Jireh, which I think Peter mentioned that phrase, which means the Lord provides from Genesis 22 with, with um, Abraham. How many of you think you might know this song? Oh, amazing, amazing. Okay, it's one of those songs that came and died. It probably needs to be resurrected. But that's what this passage is saying. Jesus is Jehovah Jireh. He is the God who provides. He makes a banquet in the desert. He turns scarcity, scarcity into 12 baskets of leftovers. Right? This is who he is. And you ask, who, who does that? Well, God does. So, try and find a note. Mm. How about the Jehovah Jireh, my provider? Does that sound okay, Louise? I'm thinking. She wasn't born when this song was being sung. Okay, we'll give it a crack. If it's the wrong key, we'll stop halfway through doesn't go forever, don't panic. But I think it actually encapsulates some of the, okay, this is what this means. Okay, on two. <laughs> Will I conduct? Yeah. Just, okay, let's, let's like go to the dentist. Just go in and have it done. Okay. All right. Together. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me, for me, for me. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me. I'll move on. My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches in glory. He gives his angels charge over me. Jehovah Jireh cares for me, for me, for me. Jehovah Jireh cares for me good song to sing when you get anxious. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you did some really strange things when you walked amongst us. But we thank you for the way that you showed that you're so much greater than Moses with the manna in the desert. Thank you that you can turn scarcity into superabundance. Lord, help us to trust you when we are anxious about not having enough of either food or clothing or housing or just emotional energy to love people and to survive difficult situations as you call us to do. So Lord, we pray we would enjoy being fed by you both physically with our daily bread and fed by you also with the daily bread of our needs of forgiveness and strength to love and to care. In Jesus' name. Amen.